0: And Lord, we just want to pause and and pray that you would help us when it comes to understanding the principles that we find here in your word and applying them to our life. May we be diligent, Lord, to make application of, of the truths we see here, that we would not live in conflict with others within the church, but that, Lord, we would seek with all our hearts to live in peace and unity with our brethren. In Jesus' name, amen. People everywhere experience conflict, isn't that true? Husbands and wives have conflict. Parents and children have conflict. Teachers and students have conflict. Employers and employees have conflict. I know that first, first well because I'm, <laughs> I, I own a company and I, I know the conflict that happens. Police and citizens have conflict. Nations and other nations have conflict. We call that war. Actually the whole world is filled with conflict. And it's no different when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ. We experience conflict within the Church. Someone put it this way, to dwell with the saints we love, oh that will be glory. But to dwell with the saints we know, that's a different story. <laughs> We'd like to think that the Church is a utopia, right? This, this perfect place There's conflict everywhere else, but when you come to the church, it's perfect peace and unity and love and harmony, but that's just not true. There's conflict sometimes between church leaders. Sometimes there's conflict over doctrinal disputes within a church. Sometimes there's even conflict over what color carpet to put in the sanctuary, for crying out loud, you know. Um, Most new denominations, I believe, are probably started because of some kind of conflict. And rather than resolve the conflict, they just go over here and start a new denomination. And it's as old as the book of Acts. We read in Acts chapter 15, verse 37 to 40. There it says, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. There was such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they couldn't work together. You think, well, Paul and Barnabas, they're like pillars in the early church. Paul's an apostle. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. Godly men, committed men, devoted men to Christ. And still, they had such a sharp disagreement, they had to separate. James 4.1 says, What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? That's the source of the conflicts, the quarrels among us. And church conflicts are not new. They've been around since the beginning. We've already seen one here in Acts chapter 15. And they're going to be with us until Jesus Christ returns. So the big question is not, will we ever have a conflict with anybody else in the church? Most likely, yes, there's going to be something in our lives. The question really is, how do we deal with that conflict when it arises, and how do we resolve it in a way that honors God? So that's what I want to try to, to focus on from the Word of God today, is how do we resolve these conflicts within the body of Christ? As we do that, we're going to look at two women. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. And Paul exhorts both of them to live in harmony in the Lord in verse 2. Now that phrase, live in harmony, it literally means think the same things. Or be like-minded. Or agree. So there was a disagreement between these two sisters in the church. They disagreed, and it must have been a pretty... Significant disagreement for Paul to have to mention them by name in his letter and tell them that they need to stop their squabbling and conflict and they need to come back together and agree in the Lord and they need to live in harmony rather than butting heads. Now, he says that they need to do this in the Lord, live in harmony in the Lord, and I think that's key. I think that's a really important phrase in this whole verse. We can only live in harmony with one another when we do it in the Lord. And I take that to mean we live in harmony in the Lord when we depend upon the Lord's power, when we seek the Lord's will, when we rely on the Lord's grace, and when we submit to the Lord's rule. We do all of this in the Lord, and then harmony will flow. But if we are doing this in our flesh or carnal, carnally, we don't, should not expect there to be peace and love and grace and harmony to flow in the body of Christ. So I think this is actually a really sad statement. I think verse 2 and 3, especially verse 2, is a very sad statement. Because this is the only time these two women are ever mentioned in the Bible. And the only time they're mentioned is because of their sinful behavior towards one another. They couldn't get along. Can you imagine being in the church in Philippi, and you're sitting there, and somebody, maybe one of the elders, stands up and he says, hey, I've got this letter from the Apostle Paul, I want to read this letter to you, and all of a sudden you hear your name in the middle of the letter. I want Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. I mean, that would be pretty embarrassing if you're called out from the rest of the church and told you guys need to cut it out and get along with each other. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is sad and it is embarrassing, but... But that's not to say that these women were not true believers. I believe that they genuinely were, because verse 3 says, um, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So these women were involved in the cause of the gospel. And they were struggling in the cause of the gospel. Meaning they weren't sideline Christians, they weren't nominal believers, They were heavily involved in supporting Paul and doing the work of gospel ministry, whatever that looked like for them. I'm not sure exactly, but they were serving the Lord. They were devoted. They were zealous Christians, which is interesting to me. You can have zealous, godly Christians who have to resolve conflicts from time to time. This morning, what I want to do is point out five biblical principles to help us resolve conflict. Five principles. The first one is, if possible, overlook the offense. If possible, just let it go. There are some offenses that are minor. And in many of those cases, it's best just to cover them up in love and move on. Just forgive and go forward. I say that because 1 Peter five eight says... Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers over a multitude of sins. So, if we're fervent in our love for each other, there's bound to be times when we're just going to cover over that sin and not make a big deal of it, just forgive them and move on. Proverbs 19, verse 11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It's his glory to overlook it. He doesn't have to always be justified. He doesn't always have to confront about every little thing that happens. It's his glory to overlook it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul wrote to the Corinthians about some of the brethren there were bringing lawsuits against one another. And Paul, Paul was upset about that. He said that ought not to be done. In fact, his, his final advice to them was, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, instead of lashing out in the legal court system to avenge yourself for these offenses that people are bringing against you, why don't you just absorb the offense and move on? That was his counsel. Everyone's got bad days. I've got bad days. You have bad days, right? We can get irritable with each other. We, we get stressed out about something. We're impatient. We do things that, that hurt other people. We don't intend to, but it happens. And so how do we react when that's happening? I think we need to be willing to extend the same grace to others that we hope that they will extend to us when we have a bad day. There is an author by the name of Ken Sandy, and he wrote a book called The Peacemaker. And I want to read to you a short little story, because I think it illustrates this. He says, I remember one day when Corlette said, his wife was Corlette, when she said something that really disappointed me. I don't remember what she said, but I do remember going out into the backyard for a few minutes to rake leaves. For about 15 minutes, I treated myself to a real pity party. And I was increasingly convinced that I should go back inside and let her know how hurt I was. But then, by God's grace, Philippians 4.8 came to mind. Ha! I thought at first. What's noble, right, or lovely about the way she's treating me? But the Holy Spirit wouldn't give up. Within a few minutes, I grudgingly conceded that Corlette is a good cook. This counterbalancing process often begins with the basics. (laughs) Then I admitted that she keeps a beautiful home and practices wonderful hospitality. And, yes, she has been very thoughtful toward my family, and she is certainly pure and faithful. I remember how much she had supported me through some difficult times in my work, Every chance she gets, she attends the seminars I teach and sits smiling and supportive through hours of the same material, always saying she's learned something new. Corlette is a marvelous counselor and has helped hundreds of children, and didn't she even take up backpacking because she knew I loved it? I realized that the list could go on and on. Within minutes, my attitude was turned upside down, and I saw the offensive comment for what it was. A momentary and insignificant flaw in an otherwise wonderful person. I did go back inside but not to confront Corlette about what she had said. Instead I just wanted to give her a hug and tell her how glad I was to be married to her." Isn't that a beautiful story? (laughs) Beautiful story. It illustrates this idea of if possible overlook the offense. We're all human, we're all fallen, we're all gonna have bad days. Just let it go. But what if you just can't do it? You've tried to let it go, and it still plagues you, and it comes back again and again to you, and you still feel hurt whenever you think about that person. Uh, You still have feelings of resentment or bitterness. Well, let's go on to principle number two. Go to your brother and tell him his fault in private. That's principle number two. Luke 17.3, Jesus says there, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So here we have a situation in which the offended brother didn't just overlook the offense. Someone sinned against him, and instead of overlooking the offense, Jesus counsels him to rebuke him. So there are situations where it is biblical for you to actually confront the person who sinned against you. If you can't overlook it, Principle number two, go to the person in private and reprove them in private. Now, why do I say in private? Well, because of what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18.15. Let me read that verse to you. Now, Jesus said there, if your brother sins, and then some late manuscripts add against you, so not sure if against you is part of the original or not, but let's just take it that way. If your brother sins against you, Or even if he just sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So here Jesus commands his disciples to confront a sinning brother. But he tells them very specifically, you've got to do it in private. This is not to be a public thing. The problem that I've seen, and I've been a Christian a long time now. I'm an old man, I guess. I can admit that. 62 years old, I've been saved since I was 19, so that's a long time. And I've seen a lot of these situations come up and almost invariably people handle conflicts the wrong way. They don't go to their brother in private. They start talking to other people trying to sort of get them on their side and spreading the... the, the do you know what that brother did? How they hurt me? Did you realize... Let me just tell you. And so they start talking to people within the church. Now do you see the, the, the destruction that can take place from that? Jesus wants, whenever possible, to limit the sphere of, of these festering problems within the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be made public until stage 3 of Matthew 18. But this is stage 1. If your brother sins against you, go and reprove him in private. We stir up bad feelings... Whenever we don't do this the way Jesus told us, we stir up resentment. Other people start to feel negatively towards that person that you're talking about. And instead of keeping something a private issue that should be a private issue, now we've made it a public issue within the body. Division can result from that. So it's all around, it's a destructive thing. If you feel like you need to confront somebody about something that they've done to you, then go to them one-on-one. No one else should be there, you and that person, and speak to them about the issue. And I also see something else that happens a lot at this particular phase. Someone has something against somebody else, that brother or sister has hurt them, they start feeling uncomfortable whenever they're around them, they start to avoid them, and before long they just decide that they're going to leave the church and go somewhere else. That's not the counsel we find in the Bible. The counsel we find in the Bible is to resolve that issue in humility and gentleness, confronting in private, seeking the Lord to bring repentance and restoration and reconciliation. Not just avoid the problem and go someplace else. That's the easy way out, but it's not God's way. So... If, if God calls us to do this and confront a person about something that they've done, that has hurt us, how, how do we speak to them? Well, Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So we're not to speak to them with harshness or anger or vindictiveness. We are to speak to them with gentleness. Praying that God will use our gentle reproof to bring about his work in their life. So that's principle number two. Number three, we need to realize what is at stake when it comes to these conflicts that we have with others. It has some serious ramifications. When Christians argue or fight with each other, the testimony of the church is undermined, the ministry of the church is diminished, the body of Christ is handicapped, the unity of the church is assaulted, and the peace of the body is destroyed. These are very, very serious things and so we need to take this very seriously. The kingdom of God takes a direct hit from Satan. The devil would like nothing else for us to be fighting and squabbling against each other because that saps all of our strength. We're supposed to be loving each other and serving each other and reaching out to a lost world and bringing people to Christ. And instead of doing that, we're squabbling and fighting and wasting all of our time and energy in carnal means. And that's exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. So that's principle number three. Realize what is at stake. Number four... Humble yourself so you can learn what God wants to teach you in this whole matter. Humble yourself. In any disagreement, I have found, usually there is some truth both parties will express. It's not like one person is 100% right and the other person is 100% wrong. There's a mixture of truth and error probably being shared on both sides. And if we can humble ourselves, maybe God wants to teach us something in this conflict. Maybe we don't see everything the way we ought to see all things. If it's a doctrinal dispute, uh, we probably have to admit that that other person that disagrees with this has a kernel of truth. Why not just admit that? Okay, I can see that is true. Uh, I, maybe I don't fully agree with your position, but I can, I can see why you hold to that position and I can see the scripture that supports it. So it, admit that. If it's Someone who comes to you and confronts you about some kind of a character issue in your life. Maybe someone in love confronts you about something like pride or selfishness or laziness um, or some other sin. Our first reaction is to deny it, at least speaking from personal experience, (laughs) no, Uh, and, and claim that they're all wrong. Right? We deny it. No, you got it all wrong. You're totally off, off the wall. But the, I've also learned in my own life that each one of us has blind spots. We don't see everything about ourselves, And that's uh, humbling to admit, but there are spots. We, we think everything is good in our life, but yet someone comes and con- confronts us about something, and then we have to think, well, maybe I've totally missed something. Maybe, maybe I'm not seeing it. Maybe other people all see this glaring fault in my life, and I'm just not seeing it. And it's like someone poking you in the eye. You recoil, right? You want to get away. But I think what the Lord would have us do is to humble ourselves and go before Him and just ask Him honestly, Lord, is there truth in what this person has told me? Is there any truth to that? Please show me. We have to be humble enough to admit that just maybe the Lord is using that other brother that I don't like coming and confronting me. Maybe he's using them to expose some sin in my life that I haven't seen before. And only a humble person is going to be able to do that. So we need to ask God for humility. And then number five, principle number five, recruit the aid of a mediator. That's what we see going on here in Philippians 4. Paul encourages someone else to come alongside, Yodia and Syntyche, and help them resolve the conflict that they have together. He says in verse 3, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, first thing we see here in verse 3 is, is this true companion, indeed true companion. Interesting, he doesn't call him by name. He calls Yodi and Syntyche by name, but he doesn't call this person, whoever it is, by name, and we wonder why. Who in the world is he talking about? And the short answer is nobody knows. (laughs) I've read lots of commentaries, and they give lots of ideas, but nobody knows for sure who this person is. Some have said, well, maybe maybe it was Luke. Or maybe it was Epaphroditus who was the one bringing the letter back to Philippi. Maybe he was the true companion. Or some people say, no, what we need to do is just take the Greek word, which is Syzygos, and don't even translate it, just take it from Greek, that's the name. And they say, indeed, Syzygos, I ask you. And so they say, well, the person's name was Syzygos. The only problem with that is that we've never found any other person in ancient history with that name. But what we do know is evidently the Philippians knew who it was because Paul didn't have to explain. There was no problem in their understanding. And interestingly, he didn't just ask one person to be the mediator. Apparently, there was a group of people he said get involved because he doesn't just mention the true companion, he also mentions Clement and the rest of his fellow workers whose names are in the Book of Life. So these were true believers. Their names were in the book of life. They were saved. They are on their way to heaven. He asks them, get involved. You shouldn't let this festering conflict go on indefinitely. You need to help them resolve it because we need the peace of the church. So get involved in helping them do that. Sometimes believers get stuck in a, in a toxic, poisonous relationship. Both believe that they're right and the other person's wrong. Both believe they've been sinned against by the other. Both believe they have nothing to apologize for. Both are involved in the same church. And both have let bitterness and resentment fill their hearts. And they seem incapable of reconciling without help. And when you get to that point, you need someone else to step in and help you resolve that issue. And so what I'm talking about here is a trusted, mature friend who steps in, a third party who's objective, who can see both parties, and try to point out the sins on both parties and urge each of them to repent of the sins they have committed and extend forgiveness to one another. Sometimes that becomes necessary. Sometimes that happens within a marriage. We call that marriage counseling. We look for a mediator or a third party to help bring those two estranged partners back together. And sometimes it happens within the church. This Something like that happened in my first pastorate in Milpitas. I, Debbie and I and the, our family went there in 1990. I was a brand new pastor. I'd never pastored a church before. So I was green. I was inexperienced. I really didn't know what I was doing. No one told me how to do this. <laughs> so I showed up and for the first three years there was conflict in the church because the previous pastor had been a pastor for 30 years. He was beloved by the church. Uh, they had, he had their support. And uh, when he left, and I came in, they thought, who is this guy? I-, I, wasn't, I wasn't like Ron. I wasn't the same guy. I didn't minister the same way he did. Um, to make matters worse, I shut myself for, for like seven hours a day and studied the Bible, and I should have been out developing relationships with all these people. So I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> God have mercy on me. So, so for the first three years, there was this ongoing tension within the church, and it... It culminated with two of the disgruntled members going to the previous pastor before me and asking him and two other pastors that lived in the same town to come together and mediate because they really believed that I was disqualified and needed to leave and I shouldn't be pastoring the church. They wanted somebody else. So we got together and we had this very long meeting and they aired their grievances. They heard everything from both me and another elder and these two disgruntled members. And so the four of us plus three pastors, we all met together. And then they, the, the three pastors that heard the grievances, they went away and they talked. And they prayed. And several hours, and we came back later that evening after several hour um, difference. And their conclusion after they had heard everything was that, there's nothing that I had done to disqualify myself as a pastor. So I didn't need to step down. But maybe because of inexperience and lack of wisdom, I should hook up with a more seasoned, mature pastor and help him teach me, mentor me, as the best way to, be, to, to pastor the church. Um, but that their counsel to these other two disgruntled members was that they needed to come alongside of me and support me and encourage me and get behind the work of God here in the church rather than fighting against it. Well, sadly, that's not what happened. Within a couple of weeks, maybe even a week, they were both gone, they both left. So, mediation doesn't always work, but it's always what we should be willing to do in order to try to make things work. Um, so, yeah, I ended up staying there. Oh, the, the, the long story, I gave them the first three years. I was actually there for ten years. After those two disgruntled members left, we had seven years of glorious peace <laughs> in the church. It was wonderful. Uh, God ended up doing some really wonderful things. Many people were converted, many baptisms. We ended up going out on Monday nights and riding the trains, the light rail trains, and doing evangelism each night, talking to the people we were sitting next to. We started house churches, which are more like, uh, well, they're like small groups, but, but they even had the Lord's Supper. We had a full meal. Um, I mean, just wonderful things happened during that time. But it it took us going through the first three years and then going through a mediation process and and that was unsuccessful. And so sometimes sometimes I guess the moral of that story is believers do need to go separate ways if they cannot resolve the conflict to their satisfaction. I guess there are times like that. Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, he knows it's not always possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you. So don't worry about the other guy. But it, as far as it depends on you, do everything you have to do. Everything you can do to be at peace with that person. You don't want to be at war. You don't want to be at conflict with them. So humble yourself. Be willing to admit your faults to that person. Ask for their forgiveness for the things that you've done. And at that point, you've done everything you can do to be at peace with them. Then the shoe falls on the other side. They have to make up their mind whether they're going to reciprocate and be at peace with you. Now, let me just ask, is anybody here experiencing any kind of conflict with another brother or sister in Christ at the moment? That may not be happening. It may have happened in the past. It might happen in your future. But we need to store up the truth of God's Word so that when it does happen, we will respond in a godly way. And so just three things in closing. Should that happen, ask the Lord to show you your sin in the matter. What is your sin? In Psalm 139, 23 and 24, the psalmist prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. So he prays that God would show him his own faults. Not, Lord, show that other person how wrong they were in this situation. Lord, show me what I did that was wrong in this situation. So that's where we should start. There's always some fault on both sides. Whenever I've done marriage counseling and people are estranged, I can see that there's there's some fault on both sides. It's never 100% one, 0% the other. So ask the Lord to show you your faults and sins and be open to hearing God's voice through His Word. Number two, humble yourself. Be willing to admit your sins and ask for forgiveness. I mean, that's so simple, but sometimes it's going to be so hard to do, right? Because it takes... Humility to admit your sins and ask for somebody else to forgive you. And number three, if none of that works, seek the help of a mediator. Find another brother in Christ who is mature in his faith, who can be objective, who's not going to lean one way or the other, but is really about wanting to bring peace within the church and... Be willing to go and submit to that other mediator and allow them to bring out things that, that will reveal to both of you uh, what the problem is in the situation and be willing to turn from the sin in your life. So I just, I pray that God would help us when we are confronted with conflict. It can be in your family, in your marriage, in your church, wherever there is conflict. Let's, let's apply the biblical principles. And, and see the Lord do wonderful things in those relationships. And so, Lord, we ask you for your grace that you'd help us to do the things that we've read today. We pray for humility, Lord, that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't be so proud that we couldn't hear something or wouldn't be willing to go to you in prayer and ask you to search our hearts and show us where we're wrong. Break down our pride, O oh God. I pray, Lord, within the bridge, should these conflicts arise, that you would help us to deal with them swiftly and in a way that honors you, that there would be no festering sore that would cause infection in the body of Christ, but that, Lord, we would would really resolve these things according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.